0: You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.
1: Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in this matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you.
0: Good morning, City on a Hill. How are we doing this winter Sunday? We're doing all right. Hey, has anybody recognized the Bible reader on the screen for us? We should put our hands together for our own. Stephanie Hill. Thank you, Steph. Very articulate. Well done. Hey, so good to be back with you after a couple of weeks out of Jars of Clay in our 2 Corinthians series. If we haven't had the chance to meet before, my name's Nick. Get the joy of being the pastor here. And we are a church. All about knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. We're going to do that now by diving into this passage that was just read out for us. And to do so, let me kind of refresh our memories of where we left two weeks ago in 2 Corinthians. Uh, I want you to know, big idea, the church in Corinth is a mess. Uh, It is a complete mess. This church is the kind of church that if you told someone, hey, I, I go to that church in Corinth, they go, ooh, how's that going for you? There was division, there was debauchery, there was kind of different opinions about what is true Christianity, what is true spirituality. And so it led to the Apostle Paul, who planted the church, to go back there and to visit and kind of shape them up, work work things out. But that visit went so poorly and the church was such a mess that it made things worse. Uh, And so he retreated and he wrote them a letter, a harsh letter, a scathing letter, but a letter that came with great love. ...for the church, that he wanted them to be one, to be reconciled, and so they received that letter. And having heard about how the church in Corinth received that letter, Paul then writes the letter that we have now to Corinthians. And we see a bit about their reception of that letter come out here in this chapter, in chapter 7. In 2 Corinthians, Paul has addressed a number of things, particularly the disrespect of some of the church to him when he was there in person... He's addressed some of the ways that people that he brought up in the faith have now disowned him because of some of the super apostles or celebrity pastors who have flown on in to Corinth and caught their own following. And so the church here in Corinth is a mess. And we should be familiar today in the 21st century with churches being messes. Uh, We know that the church today is a bit of a mess, there's been royal commissions into how churches have handled child abuse. There's been celebrity pastors and celebrity churches, even now, kind of being pulled before the courts. Uh, every month, there's a new podcast about how power has been misused and finances have been misused within the church. We probably all know and can bring to mind churches that we know that are divided or crippled at the moment Some churches have kind of exchanged the narrative of scriptures for the narrative of the world. Other churches buck against that, and yet do so in engaging in in culture wars. The, the, The church is a mess. And yet, this isn't new. If you know anything about church history, you know that between Corinth and between the 21st century, the church has always been a mess. The church has always been a mess. And so a question for our culture and a question for us is what are we to do with the church? What are we to do with the mess? Do we abandon the church? Well, you might know that in recent decades, millions of Australians have voted or answered that question with their feet, uh, and we are reminded every census by the media who loves to remind us that the church apparently, is falling uh, or uh, a sinking ship that is sinking into the abyss of irrelevance and disrepair. And so should we jump off the church? Should we abandon the church? Well, if you're here this morning, I'm guessing that your answer to that question, I, I hope, is, is no because you 're a church, if you didn't know. It. Thank you for being with us at church. And so maybe our temptation here today, for those of us in this room, isn't so much to abandon the church, but rather we might be tempted not to abandon the church itself, but perhaps to abandon the biblical vision of who the church ought to be. Perhaps we might not abandon the church in a wholesale way, but rather we might commit instead to just dating the church instead of fully committing. That we might join in the suburban carousel of light-touch church commitment, where we attend, for sure, but we never really dive into community, so that we can, if anything ever goes wrong, quickly bail and join a different one. So what we're going to see today is that the Apostle Paul has, or he knows, a few very powerful things. And it leads him to respond in this particular chapter in a way that is completely countercultural toward the church there in Corinth. Even though he knows it is a mess, his response wasn't to retreat, wasn't to abandon the church, wasn't to go find greener pastures, it wasn't to tap out of relationships with those religious people. No, he started watering the grass of the church with the gospel. He wanted to go the opposite way. He, He dug in even further into the church that he might see the church become all that he wants it to be, all that he knows that God wants the church to be. And so we see that happen as we initially approach chapter seven, that into the the mess of church life there in Corinth, Paul lovingly writes to them and says this in verse two, make room in your hearts for us We have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before, you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I'm acting with great boldness toward you, I have great pride in you, I'm filled with comfort in all our affliction, I'm overflowing with joy. Now Paul knew more than all of us that the church could be a mess, this is the Paul who had been lied about. He had been betrayed. He had been publicly disrespected from the very people that he had brought to the faith. They had now disowned him and followed other, less purely motivated leaders. His attachment to the church had almost got him killed on multiple occasions. He'd had to step into particularly unique pastoral moments where a man was sleeping with his stepmom. He tried and tried and tried again to help this church embrace the message of the gospel, but it was slow going. And so if there was anyone who might have some reasons to pack it in, maybe to write a blog about the trauma that experienced and how they'd take Jesus and not the church, it was the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul would have been right, perhaps, to respond that way. And yet here he is saying that the church is in his heart to live together and to die together. He's telling the church, hey, you are a mess, and I'm not going anywhere. I am sticking with you. And so there's a sense that the Apostle Paul here is bearing the fruit of things he knows to be true about the church. And that's how I want us to approach this chapter today. How could it be that Paul could respond, given all that he'd been through, like this to the church? How could we, like him, in the 21st century, have a countercultural commitment to the church and bear those same fruits that we see play out in this chapter, even in the midst of the mess that we know the church is today? We're going to that will click into that phrase, make room in your hearts for us. And the hope in the way that uh, I want to structure this talk is to zoom out a little bit from 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and just observe how Paul behaves toward the church and point out some of the convictions that Paul will have had that we know from elsewhere in Scripture about the church that made him have the church in his heart like this, that we might make room in our hearts for the church, in the same way that Paul has in his. And so, what I'm going to do is, we're going to walk through the text, but before we do, I'm going to pull out three convictions that Paul has about the church and the three fruits that fro- flow from those convictions that we see in this text. As I go, hopefully, it makes sense for you note takers in the room. Uh, the first answer to why Paul could respond like this to the church is because he held a fundamental, essential, bottom line conviction. And that is that he knew that God is in community. God himself is in community. Now, the Christian God is unique. I'm conscious that in a room like this, some of us have been brought up in the church, hearing a lot of theology, but others are very fresh to it. And this might indeed be your very first Sunday. And so I want you to know that the Christian God is unique among all the gods purported to exist in our world Now, the work of philosophers and thinkers in our age, they they kind of get into the heart of humanity, why it is that we are here and uh, how the universe started. And Many in our own day uh, would philosophize that if you were to pare back the existence of our world to what is most essential in the world, to its most fundamental and its most basic parts, at the very beginning of humanity, you would find matter. That it was purely material. Before we existed, you and I, what came into being was some matter occurred in the universe through an unknown cause, the Big Bang or something like it. And the implications of such thinking would be that therefore the immaterial, things that we perhaps take for granted as Christians and yet maybe not so in our world, things like truth, things like justice, things like what is right or wrong, morality, things like spirituality well, these things need to be explained by the theory of evolution. And so there isn't really a truly objective right or wrong or an objective standard of morality to which we should strive. Rather, we might hear it these days, you do you. Rather, you should just follow your heart. Rather, you should speak your truth. And we can say that when we believe these things are merely internal, subjective, and inside of us. And yet when we think about that, we can immediately see how it is self-defeating. Because if love or justice or morality is purely an internal evolutionary notion that exists so that we might further humanity and society progress, then we don't actually have an outside, objective, external standard to point to, do we? And if we don't have an outside, objective, external standard to point to, then my vision of progress might just say that your vision of progress is dangerous. And it will just become a competing fight between our different visions of what is true, right, good, and beautiful. You might say that mine is on the wrong side of history. And so we are left with our future being curated, our future being decided by those who have visions of the future and also have the power to enact it. And so the question becomes, well, whose love, whose morality, whose truth do we follow? Vladimir Putin right now thinks that he is enacting justice in the world. But if we're all just matter anyway, if really at the beginning the fundamental basis of our universe was just matter, then it doesn't really matter at all, does it? But the Christian explanation is unique. Because we don't have to guess at what is most fundamental in our universe. We don't have to guess at what is most essential. We don't have to guess at what was going on before we existed, before humanity came to the world. Because the Bible actually gives us a lot of insight into what was happening before creation. And if we were to pare back our existence to what its most fundamental and basic parts, well we would see that the bible tells us god was there. God is most essential in our world that everything else is contingent and yet he is independent. He is there fundamental and from him comes truth and justice and righteousness and morality and goodness. And now other religions might agree with that. And yet what sets the God of the Bible apart from all others is that God has revealed himself being there by himself before everything else as being there in community. In eternity past, he was dwelling in community because the Bible tells us that there was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Always there, pre-creation existence for all eternity in pure, unified, holy joy. God is what we call triune. It's the concept of the Trinity. Jesus himself tells us that before creation existed, he was delighting in glory with God the Father. We get the idea that we have one God, one divine essence, and yet three unique divine persons, pure, and perfect community forever. And often we might think, "Man, what this, this whole thing about the Trinity? This is for Bible college. What are we doing talking about it on a Sunday? It doesn't seem particularly personally applicable right now." Ha uh-huh, ha! But it is, particularly when it comes to us thinking about community, thinking about why we might want to relate to others. Because if God existed purely by Himself and not in triune, if He was one yune or whatever that <laughs> way to say it would be then if you and I been made in his image, wouldn't we? We would have been born into the world purely comfortable being alone. If God was alone forever and we were made in his image, you and I would be comfortable being alone. And yet we're told it's not good that man be alone. But yet we're, we feel some incessant need within us, don't we? That we might be in a community with other people. And we actually feel the pain of loneliness. That being alone hurts And that is literally true. Research tells us that lonely people are 50% more likely to die prematurely compared to those with healthy social relationships. Even the the introverts amongst us, I'm sure, would tell us, or maybe they'd text us after they went home, (laughs) that they need community. Once they've recharged their batteries, we need community. And so out of the overflow of God's existing community pre-existing. He didn't need you and I to be created. He wanted us to be created. But out of the overflow of his pre-existing community, the outrageously good news of the gospel is that you and I in Jesus are offered, invited, beckoned, called to to come in and and join this pre-existing community, to know this God, to commune with this God. And very importantly, for when it comes to our approach and our thinking about the church, we need to know that we can actually experience something of that community in a foreshadowed, smaller, light touch kind of way compared to the divine, glorious way. We can experience that together in the church. That this church and every local church is an embodiment of that community that we are to experience and that God has experienced Forever, And so Nadir, a natural implication in Paul's mind when he's thinking about the church and he's thinking about division and he's thinking about how they're, they're fighting and they, they, they're kind of disowning him. He's like, no, no, I'm not going anywhere. I am diving into this community. This is about who God is when we think about Christian community being together. and we, So we see the, the fruit of this conviction play out here in chapter 7. That the conviction itself is that God is in community, and yet therefore that means that Paul strives for unity. The fruit is that we will dwell in unity. Paul made, uh, Jesus himself made this link between the Trinity and between your and I unity on the night that he was betrayed. He said, all mine are yours and yours are mine. This is praying to the Father. I'm glorified in them. I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And so Christian community should be united because God himself, is united in the Godhead. And so we see Paul push back to the Corinthians and want to fight for unity. His visits, his letters, his emotional investment and attachment to these people here in Corinth, it is all about keeping them, bringing them together. And now this, I know, is is a challenge for us because you and I, we live in a very individualistic age. If we were to play a word association game on the word the church, unity is probably not in the first 10 uh, that are going to come to our minds when we think about the church. Uh, I love to tell the story. Uh, allegedly, there was once a, a Christian who was stranded on a, a deserted island, uh, and he did the whole Tom Hanks thing in the movie Cast Away, and he survived and was finally rescued by some uh, emergency services people. And as they pulled him up out of the island, up onto the helicopter, they noticed that he had created three little houses, three little huts. And so they said to this Christian, dude, what? why did you make three houses? You could have just, you could have just had one. And he said, well, one was my house that I slept in, one was uh, my church, and the other one was my new church that I moved to after I left my former church. And Christians, though, we, we seem addicted to separation, addicted to trying to find reasons why we shouldn't stay together and why we need to come out and form our own thing. I read a book once called Handing Down the Faith, which was a research uh, kind of book into... Why it is that that new generations, and we're told it often, why new generations aren't taking up the faith as past ones have. And the authors found that perhaps one of the the reasons, the, the most common reason for why that was happening amongst new generations was that Christianity had once been a communal solidarity project, and now it was seen as a personal identity accessory. And so the temptation even now, for those of us even today here, will be that perhaps we are here not to solidify, build the community that we're a part of, but to add to our brand and to use and commit only to the church that we see that might actually benefit the personal identity that we want to craft for ourselves. So we'll go to a church where the music matches the vibe of the spiritual life that we want to have where people go out of their way to affirm us as as valuable, where the programs are structured around our stages of life, where there'll be people of our same age in the small groups. And if we approach church like a personal identity accessory, then all of us will kind of hang back a little anxiously, a little little nervously, like a high school disco, not wanting to, to get in the middle, not wanting to get too committed we want others to do that before us, because we want to assess everything. We want to just check everything out, whether it's, whether it's for me, whether it's for us. And so we can never really achieve that sense of unity. We can never achieve that sense of real oneness, because in that model, community is deduced to like head nods in the foyer, and triviality during the meet and greet. And we live in a day where emotional commitment to anything, let alone to the institution of the church, it feels dangerous. Because it's time-consuming to get to know people. You have to be vulnerable if you're going to develop trust. You have to enter into people's lives. And then you say that phrase, I'll pray for you. Then you actually have to do it. It takes commitment. And yet, what we see in the Scriptures is that the vision of what church should be Is the community that you and I dream to be a part of? That we long for a world that's diverse, that's inclusive, that's going to accept me for me and yet also call me up to be a better me, like what the church is. A place to be loved, a place to be known, like what the church is. A place to find a purpose place to be a part of a mission, like what the church is. So let me encourage you here from from Paul's example of how he postures himself toward Corinth. Is to dive in to the church. If you're just visiting today and you're part of another church normally, dive into that church. If you call City on a Hill home, dive in to your home. Dive in to the church. Get attached to the church. Don't stay on the fringe, perhaps where it's safe, but where it's lonely. Don't stay where it's comfortable, yet where it's boring. No, go where it's dangerous. Where you might open up your life, open up even your home, your dining table, to people in the church that you might form deep, real connections with them of give and take. That's the first conviction. Second conviction that Paul knows about the church that frames how he responds here is that he knows that Christ gave himself for the church. We've got a lot of Paul's writings, and we know in the book of Ephesians, he's writing to uh, book of Ephesians, he's writing to husbands and wives, and he turns at one point there in Ephesians chapter five, and he turns to the husband saying, "Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her." And Paul makes that connection because he knows that the church universal around the globe is the bride of Christ, and Christ is not an adulterer. He gave himself particularly for one bride, the church. And Paul knew, therefore, that the church had this pride of place in Jesus' life. Uh, again, if we were to go into the prayer that Jesus prayed on the, the night that he was betrayed, we, we'd see that at the darkest moment of Jesus' life, who is it that occupies his heart, his concern, his affection? He says in, in John 17, verse 9, Hey, I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And so in that darkest moment, Jesus' heart and affection went to his people. It went to the church. And of course, we know that that Jesus' death occurred for the world, that his death was sufficient for anyone, whosoever, to come and repent and believe and put their trust in Jesus and have their sins dealt with. And yet in that moment, Jesus had in his mind, Jesus had in his heart, Jesus had in his affection, the people he knew would actually come. Those for whom his death wouldn't just be sufficient, but effective. That we heard about at the conference, that God would call, that God would justify, that God would glorify. Jesus died for the church. And so that means that to call yourself a Christian which means to be a little Christ, to follow Christ, to call yourself a Christian, but then say, hey, hey, I love Jesus, but not the church. Well, it's actually to, to split Jesus in two, that it's an impossibility for Jesus. You can't reject the one that Jesus loves the most. So to abandon the church is to say, man, I really love you, Jesus, but I hate your wife. I can't stand your wife. Now, if you said that to me, I'm siding with my wife, just so you know. (laughs) Jesus is so faithful that he says to those of us who might say that to him, hey, if you can't stand my wife, if you can't hang out with my wife, you cannot hang out with me. And so just like Jesus, Paul's heart moves toward the church because he knows that the church is the central part of God's mission in the world to win for himself a people, a church, and then bring it to his son, in eternity, pure, spotless, his bride. And so Paul hasn't abandoned the church. No, he doubles down on digging into this community. That's why when he traveled, he wasn't just an itinerant evangelist. No, he won people to Jesus and then organized them into churches. And only after they'd been organized into churches did he leave. And so there's an application from Christ gave himself for the church, the fruit we see here in 2 Corinthians 7 is that we serve the church. We serve the church. Notice what he says in verse 5 of chapter 7. He says, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. And so Paul knows that God ministers to his people through the church. He mentions here Titus. And what Titus thinks is just kind of an innocent old walking on into Macedonia, reconnecting with old friends, Paul received Titus entrance as God's comfort to him. And the Corinthian church is now starting to kind of see itself as, hey, actually we need to do, we, need, we do need to get better. We do need to kind of be pure. And it starts to mourn for the ways that it needs to, to grow up. And that makes Paul rejoice. It makes him worship. I was listening to a, a podcast this week that was... Uh, in in an American context, it was uh, talking to to a guy about how how to kind of make the most difference in the world. How can individuals today, uh, people who are in the workforce, how can they think about making the biggest influence and difference in the world today? And this guy's uh, answer to that was that, well, of course, you need to structure your education around an elite university so that you can put it on the resume. And as long as you have the elite universities on your resume, that means that it will give you a foot in the door for an interview with one of the global brands, one of the big fang companies that you would be able to Uh, get a role there and then you can be earning a certain level of income and you can be in a position of influence where you can actually be creating things and making decisions that are actually going to impact the world. That is how you make a difference in the world. Now of course we need Christians in all industries, we need Christians at every level, we need Christians in positions of power so that Christians would use that power for good. But you know the main thing that God is doing in the world right now? The main thing God is doing in the world right now is building His church. And so the main place to position ourselves if we want to be influential, if we want to make a difference in the world that we know will last and we'll be working and partnering with God's influence in the world was to be a part of a church and to serve the people of that church, that they might receive that service as God ministering through you. Some of you will be on the welcome team at our church. You know, you might be standing near the doors welcoming people and you just think, hey, I'm just just saying hello to people. I'm just welcoming people. And yet people, when they enter churches, they receive how they are welcomed as if how they're being welcomed into the family of God. You might be part of city kids and you think, oh, I'm just kind of corralling some kids for an hour once a week. And yet those kids are looking at your posture and your passion and hearing your words and it's getting inserted into their brains so that decades from now, it's part of the narrative that they see of how God brought them to faith. Some of you musicians who are up on the stage, you think, oh, I'm just, just kind of singing in front of front of people, just, just kind of singing a bit louder with the microphone. And yet we look at you and we see your passion and your conviction and it stirs it within us as well. God ministers to us. Through one another. God ministers to us and does stuff in the world through your service. If Titus doesn't come, there's no comfort. If Corinth doesn't speak words of encouragement, then there's no rejoicing. And some of you will know a little bit of my own story. I grew up as a pastor's kid, and so I grew up in the church. A fall asleep on your mum's lap during the service kind of upbringing in the church. And so I can relate to the reality that is, is common these days about pastor's kids not going on in the faith. Because I saw a lot of the ugliness of the church. I remember when I was about 10 or 11, my dad going through a particularly hard season. Uh, I remember a kind of typified of, of that season, was uh, one of the deacons and his wife bursting through our front door and shouting and screaming at my dad over a decision that he made. And I remember the, the, the voice and the shouts emanating throughout the whole house. There was division, there was gossip, there was relational fallout. I remember seeing, and we had family meetings where it was very obvious, that the toll it was taking on my parents, my mum and my dad. And so in my own kind of story of how I got to be here, being a pastor of a church, you know, for most of my life it was like, there is no way that I would ever want to do that. This was not at all in my conception of what I'm going to do with the rest of my life when I came to those years to think about it. now perhaps you've had a similar experience in the church. Hurt, disappointment, betrayal. Thankfully here, Paul highlights the direction that we're to go in when we experience such things. That our impulse might be to abandon the church. Our impulse might be to retreat from it. It's too too painful. Too much of a sting. And yet Paul's impulse is to serve it, that it might be all it should be. That it might be better. That the church might grow up and move past the division, move past the disappointments. And so, yes, the church is a mess because of her people, which is us. And yet God uses the people who contribute to the mess as a solution to that mess. God uses people like you and like me to strengthen, to mature, and to grow up the church into the image of Jesus. And so our church, it needs more gospel, not less. It needs more help not less. There's a famous saying in church history that the church is reformed, but always reforming. And so the church is always a work in progress and we as God's people need to be thinking about what is the vision that he has for us and working toward that maximal vision instead of retreating into the not yet that we experience in our own life. And so finally, that leads to the third conviction that we should have about the church The church is our mother. The church is our mother. I get that. It's a famous saying throughout church history. In the third century, a Catholic bishop, Cyprian, I mean, every bishop was Catholic back then, but he was a bishop, Cyprian. He said, no one can have God as father who does not have the church as mother. hundred years after that, Augustine, he said, the church is our mother. If you do not wish to be an orphan, stay close to her. And that theme is continued again and again and again through the Reformation and down to today, that the church is seen as this motherly, nurturing community for our faith. Because when we think about mothers, what do we think of? We, we think of uh, the ones who, who literally pushed us into the world, who gave us life, who nurture us, who develop us, who mature us, who care for us, and who form us and, and shape us to be grown-ups think about your testimony, maybe the church has done exactly the same for your spiritual life. That it's in the church that we are born into the faith as we hear about the Jesus and, and, and respond to the gospel. It's the church that seeks to nurture our baby faith and bring us along and teach us the scriptures and grow us up around other Christians. It's just the church that de- develops us in, in godliness and service. It's the church that cares for us in those crisis moments when it all seems too hard. It's the church that forms us to be like Christ. And sometimes that formation will involve what we see here in this dynamic between Paul and Corinth. It involves the difficult yet necessary work of correction. Because Paul is leaning in here on Corinth. He speaks directly to an issue that requires their repentance. In verse 8, he says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you've proved yourselves innocent in the matter. And so their behavior toward Paul in person, where they publicly disrespected him before the church, well, that led Paul to write this, this harsh letter, this stern letter, this letter calling them to repentance, correcting them. And you can imagine that there would have been immature folk amongst the church there in Corinth who, who heard the letter and were triggered, who heard the letter and thought, hey, we need to like, move away from this guy. We need to not respond well to him, but rather deflect the issue. Because immaturity does that to correction, doesn't it? Immaturity deflects correction. But there's something about receiving challenge, something about receiving correction as uh, coaching us to be better that shows maturity. Proverbs says that the wounds of a friend are better than the kisses of an enemy. The wounds of a friend better than the kisses of of an enemy. We heard last week that, that our accountability is not abuse. Now, certainly, no one wants to be around that guy who is addicted to accountability. No one wants to be around that, that, that person who, who's addicted to criticism, the one that is completely convinced they have the gift of discernment and they can discern better than everybody else where you need to get better. And they keep telling you, and even though their heart's in the right place, it always seems to only overflow in criticism, accountability, and correction. There's something ugly about an addiction to accountability. And likewise, there's something wrong with an addiction to avoiding correction. That we retreat, maybe because of feelings, or for some reason, we never can kind of enter in to say that thing that you know would help this person grow. Because we want to avoid that conflict. But there is a kind of correction that's loving a kind of correction here that that Paul brings to Corinth. And that leads to the final fruit, that when we see the church as our mother and able to nurture us and form us and bring correction to us, then we're made pure. The Bible tells us that repentance is a gift. And Paul mentions two types of grief or, or repentance here. Worldly grief, where we're corrected and yet we might respond purely to save face. We don't want that conflict. We don't want that awkwardness of feeling like we're not who we should be. People are displeased with me, and so I'm going to make it right. Or there's godly grief, where people being cut to the heart, having our sin exposed, being called out and yet called out in love. Our grief isn't man centered, but rather it's God centered. We grieve that, yeah. I am falling short of who God has called me to be. A grief of being out of step with the Spirit, a grief that leads to salvation without regret, we're told. And so we see through this fruit, and what we see here in 2 Corinthians 7, is is why God might want us to be together, to stick together, to grow together. Because if you look around right now, the people that God has in this church are the people that God has decided to put in your life to grow you, to form you, to mature you. The God of beauty, justice, righteousness, morality wants that standard to be put upon ourselves through the ministry of each other. And when we have that kind of community and we feel that kind of acceptance and challenge, then we experience not a defensiveness, but a gratefulness. Tim Keller famously said, you're more wicked than you ever dared believe, and yet you're more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than you ever dared hope. See, only a Christian community that tells you both things can help you experience the community that we dream of. Fulton Sheen once said, to be a sinner is our greatest curse, to admit it, our greatest blessing. See, how might your community, how might your relationships change if you developed a reflex of repentance rather than a reflex of defensiveness or deflection? How might your relationships change? If you committed to loving, committing, you're a mess but I'm not going anywhere kind of accountability and not avoidance, so that you might step in to be mothered, to be nurtured, to be grown up how God wants you to be. We are all in this together. And so sitting on hill, you should know, you're a mess. And I'm not going anywhere. You're a mess. And God is not going anywhere. And that's very fitting today. Because if you've seen around the room, we're, we're going to take communion together. We're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And the Lord's Supper is a, is a great reminder to us that the way that God responds to his bride, the church, by seeing it as a mess and yet giving up his life, that we might know him and be unified with him is exactly it's the same way that God has responded to you. Because God has seen your sin. Jesus knows how you've disappointed him and others, how you've failed him and others. Jesus knows what's gone on in your heart this morning, this week. And yet, Jesus isn't going anywhere. Instead, Jesus has, has, has dug in. Jesus has moved towards you even offering up His life so that you might be united to Him. And yet we have that individual faith for the sake of each other, that we might be a blessing in community toward one another. And so we're going to celebrate communion together. Before we do, I'm going to give you a moment uh, in the the quiet before we get up into small groups and take communion to, to just have a moment of reflection and God willing, a moment of repentance. Let this moment be a moment where you can search your heart and allow the Spirit to bring to your attention any darkness in you, anything that needs to be matured and and you nurtured out of through the gift of repentance. In 1 Corinthians, Paul tells the church there, the same church in Corinth, that part of why they're a mess is that they come to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner, that they come to the Lord's table Individually, not thinking about the other people around them, not thinking about the others who are part of the body in the church, and that leads to them, and that is what it means to take communion in an unworthy manner. So maybe as you you reflect on where your own heart is at, you have pointed out to you that there might be relationships that you need to reconcile even before you come to the table. We're a church that wants to experience the fruit here of unity. The fruit of service and the fruit of purity. So let's ask the Spirit to come uh, and do that in us. Uh, communion before we partake, communion is a, a, a family meal. And so uh, if you call yourself a Christian, if you are trusting in Jesus' work for you, you are welcome to come. Uh, to one of the tables and partake with us. If you're here and you're not yet a Christian, please do just uh, sit back and observe what it is that we Christians do here when we come to this moment of communion. As a sign of our solidarity as a church, we're going to do it in a slightly different way this morning. Uh, In a moment, I'm going to invite you, uh, when you're comfortable, uh, to come forward and join one of the lines, either up front or down the back. We have four different stations. We're going to take communion together in small groups. We are going to do that so that we can look people in the eye who are part of our lives, who are part of our community, part of the bride of Christ, that we might be who God has called us to be. And so I'm going to pray and close out the sermon and shift our attention to the elements. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, help us make room in our hearts for you. Lord, we come to you with a sense of of godly grief, that our sin has so separated us from union with the triune God, that so often, even now, our, our flesh bristles at the tender mercy that you provide to us through Christian community. So Lord, we repent and we are sorry for our sins. Lord, we thank you that our sins don't remain upon us And yet you, Jesus, came and put them on your own shoulders. So we pray that because of the work of Christ, because of your love for us, you would lift our vision of what you want to do through us in your church in the world. We praise you that Christ gave himself up for the church, that you've given us Christian community to empower us, encourage us, and shape us after your likeness may we receive your church as the needed and necessary gift to us and to our walk with you. So Lord, we now don't presume to come to your table trusting in our own righteousness, but purely in your mercy. We thank you for these gifts, this bread, this juice. And we pray that we who eat and drink of them in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit and in an obedience to our Savior Jesus Christ might be partakers by faith of his body and his blood. Renew us by your Holy Spirit. Unite us. Empower us to serve your church and purify us, we pray, until we come into the joy of your eternal kingdom. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.